This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Felicia Kiesing, a David and Rosalie Rose Distinguished Professor of the Sciences, Mathematics and Computing at Bard College in New York. We'll be discussing the effects of tick control interventions in New York. Welcome, Dr. Kiesing. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be joining you on your podcast. How many different tick-borne diseases are there in the United States, and what are they? Well, there are about a dozen different tick-borne diseases, so I won't list all of them. Uh, the most familiar to probably everyone um, listening is Lyme disease, which occurs in every state in the country, basically. Um, it's more common in the Northeastern U.S. and in the Midwest, but it, it occurs everywhere. So that's going to be the most familiar. And then the second most familiar is probably Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. But there are a lot of other tick-borne diseases uh, that people might be familiar with, especially depending on whether that disease occurs where they live. So I'll list a few of them. Anaplasmosis, babesiosis, ehrlichiosis. Uh, there's a, a disease that was discovered more recently called Powassan fever disease. So some of these, if you don't have them where you live, they might sound very exotic, but um, many places have several of these diseases present at the same time. In fact, I'm doing another podcast on Heartland virus, which is starting to spread in more and more places. So one is bacterial and one is viral. What's the difference? Well, about half of the tick-borne diseases in the U.S. are bacterial, roughly, and about half are viral. All that means is what type of pathogen causes the disease. So uh, Lyme disease, again, this very familiar one, is caused by a bacterium called Borrelia burgdorferi. On the other hand, uh, Powassan fever disease is caused by a virus called Powassan virus. And actually, one of the more common tick-borne diseases in the U.S. is caused by neither. It's caused by a protozoan. Uh, this is babesiosis. It's caused by the protozoan babesia microti. Um, and that's, again, neither a bacteria nor a virus. Um, it's actually caused by an organism that's more similar to the parasite that causes malaria. Uh, and the reason we care what causes these diseases, whether they're bacteria or viral or protozoal in the case of babesiosis, is because the kind of organism determines a lot about how we can treat that particular disease. What kinds of medicines would work to kill those organisms living in your body? Which causes the worst infections and which are the hardest to treat and why? Well, in general, not specific to tick-borne diseases, but in general, infections caused by viruses are harder to treat than those caused by bacteria. But as some of your listeners may be aware, some of these tick-borne diseases are a bit more complicated than that. For example, Lyme disease is caused by a bacterium, which in principle should make it relatively easy to treat. Uh, and it can typically be treated quite effectively if it's diagnosed and medicated early, but Lyme disease can get much harder to, to treat in its later stages. So even though it's bacterial, it has some of, the some of the difficulties of treatment that some viral diseases do. And one of the reasons that viral diseases are typically harder to treat is that there are fewer targets. Viral particles uh, just have less stuff in them, and so there's less for drugs to target, whereas bacteria are a little more complicated. 
uh, and their cells are quite different from ours, and so we have lots of things to target. Lyme disease is a little bit harder to treat for reasons we're still trying to uncover, um, but it includes the ways that the bacteria move through the body and where they sequester themselves. But again, that's something that people are still trying to figure out, how to treat them effectively at their later stages. How many tick-borne infections in the United States are there annually? Well, I can answer that two ways. One is to tell you how many diagnosed confirmed cases there are. There are about 50,000 diagnosed confirmed cases of tick-borne diseases in the U.S. each year. Most of those are Lyme disease, over 35,000 in a typical year. Um, but the reason, the second way that I can tell you how many cases there are is by estimates of how many real cases there are, including cases that aren't uh, confirmed. So estimates for that are about 10 times higher. So about 500,000 cases of tick-borne disease are what we estimate are actually happening with only about one in 10 of those being confirmed and documented at the CDC. Um, that's because people get an infection but don't necessarily report it or they don't get a test that allows it to be confirmed, et cetera. Some, some issues that might be familiar from people's experiences from the COVID-19 pandemic. And so we have some of those same kinds of dynamics going on in Lyme disease, but there are ways that we can estimate how many cases there probably are, and that's about half a million. So that's a lot of cases. That is a lot of cases. Uh, is there a tick season? In some parts of the country, there is. So I live in the northeastern U.S., and here there are distinct periods when ticks are active. Uh, in other parts of the country, principally in the south and southeast, there's much less seasonality. Even if there's seasonality in one tick, there'll be another tick that's present at all times. So it's seasonal in some places and not in others. Uh, and, and there are two really important things to think about that. One is that you should know the tick seasonality where you live um, because it can affect the way that you adjust your precautions about keeping yourself safe. So it's important to know when you might be at risk and, and, and to take particular precautions then. And then the other thing to toss in there with that is that um, climate change caused by human activities is changing tick seasons in much of the country. So here in the Northeast, May has typically been what we call tick awareness month or Lyme disease awareness month. But we've shown um, from looking across um, over 20 years of research that the date of tick activity is going becoming early and earlier. So in not that much many more years, we will have to move Lyme disease awareness month back to April. Ticks are staying active longer in the year as well. So more of the year is becoming tick season in the Northeast, even though we've had the benefits such as they are of of having a more seasonal period. And so people should be aware not only of what their current tick season is, but what kinds of directional changes are likely to happen as a result of ongoing climate change. So not only are tick diseases spreading, like Lyme spread from the Northeast, uh, like you said, clear across the U.S., but now the season is expanding. Yeah, that's a lot to keep track of. What are the economic costs of all these infections? Well, the estimate is about a billion dollars a year just for the medical costs of Lyme disease. So that's a substantial financial hit borne out again. And that's just the medical costs. That doesn't include other kinds of lost productivity, for example, that might go with people being sick. Like time off for work and that sort of thing. Exactly, exactly. Your study is specifically about tick interventions in New York. Which disease is most prevalent there? Well, Lyme disease is by far the most prevalent here. We're sort of the, 
a national hotspot for Lyme disease and have been for some time. Uh, but we also have anaplasmosis and babesiosis, uh, and there are several other tick-borne diseases here as well. So we've got quite a lot going on in, uh, in New York. So there's greater spread and there's longer seasons of ticks. So are these diseases and infections, I imagine they're increasing in the United States. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, the number of cases of tick-borne diseases in the U.S. has roughly doubled over the past 15 years or so. So we, we definitely see an increase in cases nationally. The other thing is that there are new infections. So it's not just that the cases of diseases we know about or have known about for a long time is increasing, but that we're also recognizing new diseases. So I mentioned earlier that Powassan fever virus or Powassan virus disease uh, is a relatively newer disease. And so we've got that to add to the list. And then there's another more newly discovered disease called uh, that's caused by the bacterium Borrelia miyamotoi. So we're not only adding new cases of existing diseases, but adding some new diseases as well. Right. And as we said, it's spreading, the ticks are spreading geographically, so infections are also spreading geographically, correct? Yes. So the, the ranges of different tick species and the pathogens that can live inside them are shifting. For example, Maine and Vermont in the, you know, in the far northeast are now hotspots for Lyme disease, but there was very little Lyme disease in those states about 20 years ago. We see the same kind of Western spread, same kind of spread to the West of New York, for example. Western New York is now having a huge number of Lyme disease cases, whereas 20 years ago, there really wasn't anything for them to worry about substantially regarding Lyme or any other tick-borne disease. And now it's a common concern. And why did you want to do this study? Well, uh, you know, not only do I live in the state that's a hotspot, but I happen to live in the county in the state that's a hotspot, the biggest hotspot. I've lived here for a long time, and Dutchess County, where, where I live and work, had more cases per capita for many years than, than just about anywhere else. So this affects our friends and our neighbors really profoundly. It has a, a huge effect on people's health here. Um, and their their comfort with being outdoors. So we wanted to figure out whether there was some intervention that we could do that would protect people from ticks and hopefully from getting tick-borne diseases. Okay, so specifically um, the purpose of your study was what? We tested two environmentally friendly methods uh, of reducing tick numbers to determine whether those methods could prevent Lyme and other tick-borne diseases in residential neighborhoods in this county. And what time period did you cover? We began using the treatments in people's yards in 2017, and they were applied for four seasons. So through the end of 2020, we started collecting data in people's yards before we um, put, put these tick-killing products to use. So that was in 2016, and we continued our data collection into 2021. So altogether, it was six years of data collection. So tell us about the study. Um, how did you structure it? We recruited participants from 24 neighborhoods in Dutchess County that had high risk for tick-borne disease based on prior cases over the last five to 10 years. And then once we'd recruited participants, each neighborhood was randomly assigned to a particular combination of these two tick control interventions that we selected. One of those is a fungal spray that's commercially available and can kill questing ticks, ticks that are seeking a host. And the other intervention is a box that has a little bit of bait in it 
inside the box is a tick killing chemical that gets dabbed onto the back of the small animals that go inside this box. So we used those two interventions, but we also had placebo controls. So people couldn't tell whether their property was getting the active treatments or the placebo treatments. From their experience, the treatments were exactly the same. We call that a masked or sometimes people say a blinded study. And the people we had collecting data for the project didn't know either. So it was a placebo controlled, randomized, and doubly masked study or double blinded study, which is the sort of gold standard for clinical trials, for example. And we did this in people's yards. Uh, we had teams of people out collecting data in people's yards on ticks and small mammals. And then we also had our participants report to us every two weeks by either text or email or in some cases phone call, letting us know if anyone in their household, including one of their pets, had encountered a tick or been diagnosed with a tick-borne disease. So it was a really massive project involving a lot of components and a lot of people. And you ended up with a lot of data. So how was the data analyzed? We did have a lot of data. We asked about how each of the interventions affected the number of ticks that we found in people's yards, the number of ticks on small mammals, and then most importantly, the number of encounters people had with ticks and the number of diagnosed cases of tick-borne diseases for people, but we also did all of that for pets as well. And most importantly here, what did you find? Well, we found that the boxes, which are commercially available as what's called the tick control system or TCS, reduced the number of ticks in people's yards by about half. We did not find that effect from the fungal spray that we tried. But we found that the boxes reduced the number of ticks in people's yards by about half. Uh, and we found that that reduction in tick abundance in people's yards was associated with fewer cases of Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases in pets but we didn't find that effect in people. So we, we, we reduced the number of ticks in people's yards, but we didn't see any corresponding reduction in the number of cases in people. We did in their pets, but not in people. Any idea why this would be the case? We can't tell for sure. Uh, we, we have a few ideas. First, pets, and here you should think dogs. We, we think that pets use more of the yard than a typical person. For example, they might covered the entire yard, including forested areas or shrubby areas in a way that people would be less likely to. So when we reduced ticks in the yard, it had a bigger impact on pets than it did on people. This might be particularly true in a neighborhood with a high risk of tick-borne diseases because people who know that they're at high risk of tick-borne diseases in their neighborhood might have adapted their use of their yards to minimize their risk, whereas their pets wouldn't have potentially. Um, and second, we still, even after all these years of trying to prevent cases of Lyme disease, we still don't know where people encounter the ticks that make them sick. There has been a long, somewhat data-backed expectation that people encounter ticks in their yards, when the, that people encounter the ticks that make them sick while people are in their yards. But that very well might not be the case, at least not for people in general. Uh, so it might be the case that pets pick up ticks in their yard, but people pick up ticks more frequently somewhere else, and we just don't know that. Okay, back to pets, because I know a lot of people are very concerned about their dogs and the yards, and some of these interventions are sort of iffy if they're working. What about medicine that people have for their dogs, uh, like collars or, or pills? I give my dog pills. Uh, do those actually work? 
Well, there are quite a few studies showing that collars uh, used on dogs and cats are effective at reducing tick and flea burdens. Typically, I'm not a, an expert on this particular topic, but I think they typically show that they are up to 90% better than control subjects. So they really aren't can be quite effective, and their safety record appears strong, and you get similar results uh, with frontline. So um, generally, those products seem to work well. Uh, we just ha we have them available for our pets, but we don't have them available for ourselves. Is there a reason for that? <laughs> That's a good question. I knew I set myself up for that. Um, how long do you have? Uh, look, there are, um, I would say, there are a lot of people working on ways to protect us from tick-borne diseases, um, to prevent tick-borne diseases um, in, in a biomedical way. Um, so our approach has been to try from an environmental or ecological way, but there are also biomedical approaches. One way to do that would be through a vaccine. And there's a long history of vaccine research related to Lyme disease in particular, which I won't go into unless you ask me to. Um, but I will say that one of the more promising directions right now is that there's some progress in developing um, a tick vaccine, or I should say an anti-tick vaccine. The idea would be that if you had this vaccine, your body would react when a tick started to embed its mouth parts, gross as that is to think about, in such a way that you would know that you were being bitten and could remove the tick before it could do harm to you or transmit a, a, a pathogen to you. Um, so there has been some recent success just uh, about six months ago now um, where a tick vaccine was tried on guinea pigs and shown to be effective. So there is hope that that might come to, um, into clinical practice over the next period of time. Okay, that is really interesting. So it wouldn't actually um, mitigate the virus or pathogen or whatever, but it would sort of make the tick feel like you were getting a bee sting or something and you'd be very aware of it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, ticks have a pharmacopoeia of chemicals in their saliva that they inject into you to keep you from knowing that they're there. So that's why we have to do these very thorough tick checks and things. If we knew they were biting us, we could remove them. But we don't know they're biting us because they have this set of chemicals that they inject into us to prevent their detection. But if our immune systems recognize them, recognize those chemicals, then they would know that the tick was biting us and we could pull it out before it did damage. One of the advantages of that approach over focusing on a particular pathogen is that we talked about there being a dozen tick-borne diseases in the United States, each caused by a different pathogen. So if we target, for example, Lyme disease and come up with an effective vaccine for Lyme disease, that might make us less vigilant about ticks, which could make us more at risk for some of the other tick-borne pathogens that are also present in our region. So an anti-tick vaccine has some benefits in that way, that it's addressing all the tick-borne diseases by going after the ticks themselves. That's interesting, yes, especially since some of these newer tick-borne diseases are quite deadly. Um, you wouldn't want to be not paying attention. That's exactly right. I'm sure there were a lot of challenges. Can you tell us about those? <laughs> well, uh, this was an absolutely huge project. It involved thousands of people, dozens, thousands of people participating in the project with us treating their yards, but we also had quite a number of people um, on our staff. We had hundreds of pets involved in the study and all, uh, all kinds of permissions and protocols and things. So getting the whole project up and running in a couple of months from the moment we got funded was 
hard, <laughs> but we had a great team. And uh, I, I have to say, looking back in a way that experience of going from zero to 60 so quickly was kind of exhilarating. Um, another notable challenge was COVID because our last year of the study was 2020. Uh, officially, that's when we were supposed to start. And so we went into that. We were just about to start that field season when we had to radically shift what it was that we were doing. And so we were incredibly grateful to our participants and to our staff for handling that so gracefully and so nimbly. And as it turned out, we were able to continue with the tick interventions through the summer of 2020, taking all appropriate safety precautions because we were in people's yards and people were willing to allow us to continue access to their yards um, through all of that. We, we had, by that point, developed these really trusting relationships with our community. And so we were able to keep going and that was a huge boon, but it was definitely a logistical challenge. Yeah, that's all pretty remarkable. Were there any surprises? Well, let's see. I I, we've been warned from the very beginning that we'd have a lot of trouble retaining participants in the study. We've been told that people would start dropping out very quickly and that we wouldn't have very many people left by the end of the five years that we had planned for the study. So I would say one of the most welcome surprises was that our participants remained so committed and so engaged with the project from start to finish. Um, over the six years of, um, that we ended up running the study, only a handful of people dropped out. And most of the people who dropped out dropped out because they had to because they moved out of one of our neighborhoods and typically we were able to recruit the people who moved into their house to join the study at that point and we continued following them so we the engagement of our participants and their sustained enthusiasm was one of the biggest surprises that's very interesting i would guess it's because it didn't involve them taking any medicine but people are also very curious and wanting not to have ticks in their yard so well that's good what do you think is the biggest public health aspect of what you found? One really important takeaway from this study and several other recent ones is that reducing the number of ticks in a small area like someone's yard appears to not have a very direct effect on whether people get tick-borne diseases. In fact, we don't have any interventions uh, on that kind of small scale that have been shown to reduce people's actual incidence of tick-borne diseases. So one of the things that's so critical about that result is that going forward, we need to make sure that researchers can do larger scale studies that can measure whether their efforts at tick control actually translate into impact on people's health, if that's the goal of the study. Uh, that's gonna require appropriate funding um, and possibly some consolidation of projects so that people can actually track through to human impacts, which will require larger scales and potentially longer timeframes. We also, as I mentioned before, we also really need to figure out where people actually encounter the ticks that make them sick. People have tried to do this in various ways, but none of those efforts is so far up to the task. So this is gonna take, uh, again, an infusion of support and some really creative research to figure it out in a way that we can use to address interventions. If it's not people's yards, then where is it? Anecdotally, I have a friend um, who lives in New Hampshire and she has a husband and two children and her husband and one of her sons had gotten Lyme disease and um, but one had avoided it all those years and then they took a trip to Scotland and weren't really in the bush or anything and he got it there. So it's <laughs> hard to tell with these things. Right. So it can be that you pick something up while you're traveling, but we also don't know whether people 
tend to pick up the ticks that make them sick in their yards or when they're on a hike or when they're at a park or when they're visiting their neighbors. These are all remaining questions. Um, and because people typically don't see ticks when they get on them. Right, yes. Well, I've become very frightened of my own yard, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, does this study change any guidance about how people should protect themselves? That's a good question. Uh, I think the basic answer is no. People still need to use all the personal protection measures that hopefully they've been learning, uh, like wearing protective clothing, uh, using repellents um, as appropriate, and doing tick checks, as well as being aware of the symptoms and the times of year to be aware of um, potential tick-borne diseases. So, no, I don't think this really changes that. We had hoped that we would find a way to effectively reduce risk by doing these interventions in people's yards, but this, the, the approaches we used did not have the, that impact. So people are still with their established personal protection measures. Tell us about your job and how you came to be studying ticks and tick control. Well, I'm a biology professor and um, a disease ecologist. So for the last 25 years or so, I've been studying how changes to the environment affect people's risk of being exposed to infectious diseases. Uh, in some ways, I would say this project was a natural extension of that earlier work um, because I became interested in how could intervene in ways that might reduce people's risk once it was already high. Uh, so this was, again, a natural extension, but it is bigger and distinctly more applied than any work that I've ever done before. Well, what do you do in your leisure time? Um, New York is a beautiful state with lots of outdoor activities. Given your knowledge of ticks, do you still participate in any? <laughs> um, New York is a beautiful state, and uh, I do participate in outdoor activities a lot. I'm outside a lot every day, whether the weather is good or bad. Um, I love to hike. I love to walk. I'm an avid gardener. Uh, so I'm aware of ticks. I'm aware of the seasons when ticks are a risk. I take precautions like wearing protective clothing and doing regular tick checks. I know the symptoms to look for and, again, what times of year to be concerned, which seasons have the highest risk. Um, I will say that I also have a fortunate quirk given my line of work, um, which is that my immune system react very strongly if a tick tries to embed its mouth parts. This might sound familiar to what we were talking about when we mentioned the tick vaccine. Uh, it, the tick vaccine is based on the same reaction that I have and some other people do. So if a tick tries to embed its mouth parts in me, I typically get a very strong um, reaction at the site of that bite and I'm aware of it. It'll, it's much more intense than a mosquito bite, for example. And so I wake up, um, sometimes my immune system has actually killed the tick and so I pull off a, a, a remove a tick, a dead tick from the surface of my skin. Um, so it's a it's a great occupational advantage, but I don't take it for granted. I still do all the tick checks and everything else as well. So, but yes, I absolutely spend time outside. It's one of my favorite things about living in this beautiful place. Well, that's very fortunate for you. I wish we all had that one, even without the vaccine. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Kiesing. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the May 2022 article, Effects of Tick Control Interventions on Tick Abundance, Human Encounters with Ticks, and Incidents of Tick-Borne Diseases in Residential Neighborhoods, New York, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.